All right. Well, open your Bibles to John 7. John 7. Last Sunday was uh, one of my favorite sermons. Uh, Not necessarily to preach, I always enjoy preaching, but to prepare for it. There was so much uh, interaction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, I really was sad when I was finished preaching that sermon. Uh, I had been a while since I had prepared so much for one particular sermon. So... And then today is kind of really part two. We're going to finish Jesus' uh, statement that he yells out and then finish off the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is, uh, you know, when you preach a verse by verse and you're actually trying to gain or uh, to exposit means to explain the text, there are sections of the text that are just kind of narrative. There's not a lot to glean from them as far as application-wise. Um, and John 7, the rest of the chapter, is somewhat in that fashion. But there is a lot to have here, so uh, there's still a lot for us to unpack and enjoy. So what we're going to do is read through the entire section and then kind of break it down and then spend specific time where John is pushing us as it relates to the Holy Spirit. So let's begin in verse 7. So John seven thirty-seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, John chapter 3, and who was one of them, Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he's done? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. And we'll continue with John 8 later. All right, so there's, uh, there's a lot going on here. But at the end of it, so John has Jesus stand up and proclaim this unique phrase, which we unpacked last week. And then after this, you feel the narrative playing it out. You have some who observe like they have in the past. I think he's a prophet. I mean, some of the things he's saying is very familiar, which we're going to see here in a minute, is very familiar within what we've heard in the law and the prophets. So maybe, maybe this guy really is a prophet. And then you have some of them, who are saying, he's the Christ. He is actually the Messiah. They, they begin to put their faith in him as he's been calling for them to do. And then you have the other crowd that completely denies him. 
and even uses the argument, none of your leaders are believing in this man. So why should you believe in this man if none of the leaders are believing in him? So you have this uh, illustration of all three categories sitting right in front of you that we've covered so far in John. Those who want Jesus for what he can provide. Those who truly believe in him because they've been drawn by the Spirit, by the Father. And they've been, their eyes have been opened to who he is. And then you have those who completely reject who he is, not only as a person, but his claims to be God right towards the end of John 7. And there is a transition between John 7 and John 8, where John starts to kind of make the turn for the cross. And we start making a beeline for the cross. And you can see here, Nicodemus is even setting us up. Are we going to unjustly judge this man without there first being a trial? Which, if you know anything about the trial of Jesus, was a mockery. And really, he was accused of nothing, and yet still still was killed. But in there, in this whole narrative, there's a phrase. So in John 7.39, you have this entire setup. Remember, so let's go back to the beginning of, uh, well, let's read verse 39 again. It says, now, he, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. But the Spirit has not yet come, because Jesus hasn't been glorified yet. So John is putting a little bit of a, a narrative footnote in there for us, which is important for us to hear. So from the beginning of John 7, we learn that it's the Feast of Tabernacles, which that entire celebration is this outpouring of water. And it's pointing back to a celebration of, just to remind us from last week, of this event that happened in the book of Exodus, where God tells Moses to come strike the rock, the rock that God is standing on, which is a very important key. And from that water comes out, and as this water comes out, it keeps Israel alive. And from that moment on, which was uh, helpful for me in my understanding of the Psalms and even a lot of the prophets, that they refer to the rock of their salvation or God as their rock because of what happened in the wilderness. It's not necessarily always the understanding of a firm foundation as much as it is God is their provider. So the scene is set. Jesus shows up on the scene at the last day. So it's seven days of celebration. They've gone down to the pool of Siloam. They've dipped the pitcher in it. They've come. They've done this Big, tremendous celebration to remind themselves that God is their rock of salvation, that God is their provider. And Jesus stands up and says, come to me if you're thirsty. So it's on their mind. They were going to God to, be, to, to find provision. Jesus says, come to me to find your provision. And that's what brings us up to verse 39. So that was the quickest uh, recap I could make for you. If you didn't hear the sermon, I'd encourage you to, I don't like to promote my own sermons, but that one I will. You should go back and hear it. That brings us to verse 39. So this, in, this, this phrase that Jesus finally yells out, John says, just in case you didn't catch it. And I like when John does this, because sometimes he doesn't do this, and we have to try and make those connections ourselves. But in this instance, John does say, and he goes, by the way, this phrase, this outpouring of water, from what we understood last week, he's not talking about water coming up out of the believer. He's talking about water coming up out of himself. It says from the little translation from the Greek is from his belly gushes water. And that's the water that we are to be consuming. So, so far you've heard us uh, in John 6, we've got we're to drink his blood and now we're to drink the water. And then we made that connection to John 19 when he was pierced with the spear. And it is interesting, too, that in John 
or 738, I mentioned this last week, that out of his heart will flow rivers of water. It's not referencing now, but something that will happen. And then John says, all of this, this idea of water, come to me and drink, it's coming from Jesus. He's saying, that is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. For it's not happening yet, but it will happen. So again, all of Jesus is, all of this is a future, he's, he's talking about the future of the cross. So John is already pointing us to the cross. We do know that from John 14 and, and, and later on that the work of the Spirit does not happen until Jesus is glorified and sent to the Spirit, sent uh, uh, to, the, to the Father's side. Now this I had mentioned last week as well. A lot of times when we hear verses that make reference to the Old Testament, because we aren't trained as uh, a Jewish family would have been in the Old Testament where it was read publicly, we would hear it, we would memorize it. References like this, we don't make that connection. But the Bible has, I'm only going to read you a couple. The Bible has this strong push of an expectation of the Spirit being poured out and the imagery being used, of course, what do you think it is? It's water, right? So I'm going to, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read you a couple of passages if you want to write these down. But here is the expectation that, that near the end of the time when G, the Messiah was supposed to come, there's supposed to be this outpouring of the Spirit. So Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them, and I will remove a heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So we've already seen that uh, there's this promise of a new covenant. This new covenant is what's being described here, that the Spirit will come, and there's this concept of cleansing, of renewal, of bringing on something new. Later on, Ezekiel says in first, uh, chapter 36, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone and, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Stop right there. What did Jesus say to this crowd in John 6 and John 7? Do you know why you can look at me and absolutely deny me? Is because you do not have life for you to see me. You cannot obey my words because the command to them is to believe. The command to them is to believe. And they can't obey that command. Why? Because they have not the Spirit in them. Ezekiel is saying right here, the reason why they cannot obey the rule or the command of Jesus is because they have not the Spirit. Right? Look at verse uh, 29. It says, And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. So this concept of the Spirit being uh, coming and poured out upon the believers. Isaiah 44.3, uh, use heavy imagery here. For I will pour, out, pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry, grand, dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then lastly, Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Sound anything familiar like the early church? Absolutely. Absolutely. This sounds very much like the book of Acts and what was going on in the early church as far as the gifts of the Spirit being poured out openly to, to the believers. 
So what's fun is as you're reading through John, what you should be picking up is that Jesus is trying to point out all that's about to happen. There are a few days away from them walking up the mountain. The sacrifice is going to happen. And when it happens, the spirit comes gushing out. And what we should see this imagery leading us to is running to Christ to find him, to find the spirit's power, and that's where we rest. But that's not necessarily what ends up happening in the church. A good example of this is read the book of Galatians. He even says that who bewitched you, who tricked you, who messed you guys up, that you would begin by the Spirit, but now you're trying to perfect yourself by the flesh. So Jesus here is trying to lead those who have been under the law their entire life, feeling that the law does not produce what they think it will produce, which is a right standing before God and blessing before God, And then he stands up and says, it's me. It's all of me and the work of the Spirit in your life is what's needed. So, uh, for the the rest of this uh, remainder of this um, sermon, I'm going to do something a little bit different. One One of the struggles I've been having lately as I am working through theology and just working through my own ministry and my own heart is... There is a constant fight within my own heart, and there will be a fight within you. And I've even talked to some of you personally that are wrestling with family members and friends that they hear this idea that Jesus should be center, that the gospel should be the center of our focus in our life. And we like that concept, and I don't think you would ever meet a Christian that would say, no, Jesus should not be the center of your life. That, that would be ironic if someone would say, no, that's not the case. Uh, but then there's, there's what we call... Um, the, the reality that Jesus should be the center and then the emphasis. So Jesus is supposed to be what emphasizes everything that we think about our life as a relationship to God. But what is emphasized when it comes from the pulpit or from uh, information flowing is not an emphasis on Christ, but on an, emphasi- an emphasis on what we must do for Christ. So the concept is very introspective. The emphasis is constantly looking into me, into my life, into my obedience, and into my effort. Am I putting in enough effort that I might be a good candidate for the work of God? Or am I putting in enough effort that I would be a good candidate for the salvation of God? I mean, that's extreme. So there's a constant call to examine, which there are times in a Christian life to absolutely examine their life, but not in the way in which we've necessarily been trained to think, that if you are to appropriately examine your life, in my opinion, the, 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 the rest that you would find should scare you. There, there, you, would be, you would live a life of a lot of unrest. Let me, let me, make it, let me, let me put it to you this way. What Jesus does in his ministry is that people who come up to him who are presenting their own righteousness to them. He says, here's where you have the wall of the law. It's very achievable. You can pull yourself up and over it and feel good that you are being obedient to the law. Jesus says, I think you've misunderstood where the law is. And then he shoots it up into outer space and says, no one can scale it. You can't go through it, you can't go around it, and you definitely cannot go over it. You are trapped on this side of God's judgment. On this side is grace, and on this side is judgment, and you're trapped here. As believers, that law is not removed. 
That's what we have to remember. The law does not go away. It's not as if if all of a sudden God's righteous standard is removed. It remains. So the law is still good and still righteous and still holy. I love God's law, as David says and the psalmist says, because it reflects for us a good and right God. You you and I both know that even in the justice system in America, you have a judge that is unethical. We don't want an unethical judge or an inconsistent judge, right? Just like you don't want a God of the universe who has some holes in his holiness. You don't want that. So what the law shows us is that God is pristine. He is beyond anything that we can comprehend. He is perfect, right? If we match our life up to the law, we should only walk away in complete despair. God does not want in us our best effort. Because it's very clear in scripture. God wants perfection. And not only does he want perfection, he requires it. He requires perfection. So you have two options. You can try and curve the law lower its standard and say, yeah, for the most part, I'm doing, I am doing a good job. And so if I were to look at my life and say, yep, I think I'm a believer because of my obedience, you have a problem. Because there is none righteous, even after you are transformed from death to life, your human capacity is still unrighteous. You are never accepted before God on your own righteousness. So when, it, when, you, when you hear this, And you hear this burden, when Jesus says these words, it makes sense to me. And this is when he's crying out to people that are feeling the thirst of the law upon them. The law is just completely drowning them. They are stuck in the desert. Life is over here. Death is over here. And he's saying, if you can feel the thirst, then I am your solution. Another, another way of saying this is uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. By what? The Pharisees putting the law upon them. And then he says this to them, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am greatly, for I am gentle, sorry, and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the comfort of a Savior who is saving his people. Uh, In, I'm going to go ahead and just grab this because we're super pro on live stream right now. At the, at the end of the song, we were just singing, No life, no death, nor life, no present or future, no angel or demon, no power, no creature can take me away from the love that is in Jesus Christ. Great conversation I had yesterday was with my brother on the phone about a, a Christian's ability to sin. Well, we, we sin more than we're even aware of. And so the, the question was presented to me was this. Can someone live in sin and yet still be a believer? And my response to that was, I sure hope so, because I constantly live in sin that I'm not even aware of. Constantly. And if anyone sits in here and thinks that right now in this moment you're not in sin, you don't understand the law. 
Are you perfectly trusting in Christ for all of everything in your life right now? Are you perfectly praying? Are you perfectly loving your neighbor? No. So the fact that you don't perfectly love your spouse or your neighbor right now at this moment means that you are in constant sin. And rightfully deserving a judgment. But yet there's this moment you want to come and present your righteousness to God because you shared the gospel this week, because you prayed for your pastor, which you should do, please pray for me, uh, because you helped set up the chairs or because you did whatever, you gave your tithe check. You're like, yeah, I am doing well as a Christian. If you want to bring out the scale, I'll be more than happy to help you do that because I know how sinful I am. So we can just transfer over some of the sins I know I struggle with because you're human, therefore you struggle probably with those same sins as well, like the ones I just named. You don't. The, the righteousness level doesn't, doesn't fit. So when it comes to resting or receiving, that moment when Jesus cries out, if you're thirsty, you should feel it. I do. I should feel that in order for me to survive in such a sinful context, I must have Christ. And it comes through the power of the Spirit. So there's not even this moment where I, I have to do something to gain Christ. This is John's whole point. The Spirit's power is what washes over me, transforms my heart from death to life. And that's what consumes, that's what I'm consumed with, is the power of the Spirit. So our, our unrighteous tendencies should terrify us of ever seeking assurance in our own works. Now, can a believer look at the course of their life and see that, man, God has really transformed my heart and my mind where I trust Him more, and I can see that my faith has increased in Him more, and the result of that has been, my life is different. Can a believer find encouragement in that? Sure. They absolutely can. But there's a difference between finding encouragement and finding your insurance, your assurance. Do you see the difference? I'm encouraged by what the Spirit's done to me because I need work. And so do you. And as the Spirit does His work. But you know what also is very discouraging? How much is left. Because there's a whole lot left. When you think about what we will be and who we are, I'm just glad that like, there isn't this progressive purg- purgatory to get me to where I need to be. Like When I die, I'm glorified. Thank God the pain is over. But as it relates to where we rest where we find that moment where we no longer have the anxiety of our future, it has to remain within the work of Christ. So we feed on Him, which is through the preaching of the Word and through the table and through baptism and through prayer. We feed on Him so that our faith stays strong in resting in Him. You know, Jesus talks about this burden in Matthew 11. You know the burden is there? That if you, that once you embrace Jesus, there will be persecution. You will be persecuted for this. That is a burden you will carry. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians. Not only has it been granted that you should be saved, or he says, not only have you been called to salvation, but to, you've been also, in Philippians 1.29, called to suffer for my sake. So there's one other passage I want you to read with me, and it ties in with this real quick. Just, just uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, turn there with me. Paul warns Timothy that there will be some who want something other than Christ. And it will sound spiritual and it will sound right. 
And it will sound biblical because it comes from the Bible. Therefore, how can it be wrong? And a lot of, I think what, what I'm doing is using this last section is to build a theology for us so that when you go and read scripture, you understand that there's an overarching, what we call a theology of faith over scripture. And if that's the case, then, it, then whatever passage we are reading, if it's not driving us to hope in Christ, but it's driving us to despair, then you might be, instead of reading scripture as it should lead to faith, you might be leading scripture as it leads to self-righteousness. Right? The way I would say that is, your actions should come from your assurance, not to gain your assurance. And Paul is very adamant about this because if you read his epistles, he starts with hope in Christ, hope in Christ, if that's the case, this is how you should live. He never says, live this way so you gain Christ. That would be reverse. Uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy 4.1, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul is writing, not necessarily to the church, but he's writing to the leader of the church, which is applicable to all churches. And in here, you know, I grew up hearing this was always um, people afraid to preach holiness. So they're going to itchy ears, so they're going to teach a lesser standard so they can have bigger churches, right? So they're going to stay away from things that are offensive, which is true, and things that sound better so that they can produce uh, bigger churches. Well, in, in my experience in most recent context, this is actually not what's applied here. The, the danger I find within our context, within a conservative Christian world, is that we accumulate teachers that suit our own passions, and those passions are, we need help in our self-righteousness. I need you to help me be a better person. So I'm going to have you teach me that. And it's become a very popular teaching for many, many years. Here is how to make yourself better. And then there's a list of it. I'm not against lists. I think they can be really helpful if they're directing you to faith in Christ. And there are times where there's some helpful instructions. Uh, Proverbs is full of some helpful instructions. James has some helpful instructions for the church. I'm not against instructions. We are, as he says, to rebuke and to reprove and instruct, as Timothy says. But it doesn't remove what the overarching message of the Bible is. And that overarching message from the mouth of Christ is what I'm hoping for you to see here in John 7 is that we come to him for absolutely everything. From our resting point, from our assurance, we then seek to obey. When I find someone struggling typically in a sin, is caught in a sin, as Galatians says, if you find a brother who is weak, and is giving in. We're to restore such a one to what? Obedience? Is that what we're restoring them to? 
Is that what we really need them to do, is to obey? No. We're restoring such a one to what? Faith. Belief in Christ so that they can repent. You do want to call them to repentance, but if you're just calling them to repentance and not to Christ, you've missed it. Because what is the entire message of Jesus? Come to me, to, to the people who are in sin. We're going to get into this uh, woman uh, caught in adultery is about to get stoned. Some of you are going to... That's going to be a fun section. Anyways, there's this moment when Jesus comes and to these people who are in sin, he brings hope and salvation. And as they turn to him, they repent. Because he knows that's the Spirit's power that has to draw them. What's interesting is he doesn't call them to repent so that they can follow him. So if I have a believer who's caught in sin, I need to bring them to Christ and call them back to hope in Christ. So I pray as a church that we will all see this as we go through John and put our hope in John and that, the, that we resist this temptation to look to our own self-righteousness. It will fail us and it will lead us into despair. Now, I do know in my own personal life, in my own personal walk, I do find myself in moments of despair where I am tired of the flesh, I'm tired of the struggle, I'm tired of the pain, I'm tired of the pain around me. And there are moments where my faith isn't uh, weak in my assurance. I don't wonder if God's saving me. But my faith is weak in his ability. Well, then I remind myself that the Bible said you're going to go through that. You will have moments of weakness. And in those moments of weakness, the design of the body of the church and of the word is that it's to minister to us. So I'm going to be going through what's called the means of grace here in a couple of weeks. The Westminster Confession describes it as one that's a gift that's given to the church for the sake of the faith as a, as a result in salvation. What that does not mean is that you do these for salvation, but it's that of the encouragement of your salvation. So there are three means that's been given. And I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. The preaching of the word, the table, and baptism in prayer. I think for me, and, and I say all of this to make this one final point, the preaching of God's word has taken a lesser importance in many believers' lives because we have elevated the individual pursuit of a believer. There are many people who do not attend church faithfully or at all because they see that I have my own Bible and I have my own devotional and I've got Google, so I will just feed on Christ that way. And then you have these devotional plans and if you can follow and you can be consistent in your devotional life, which I have nothing against, well, your growth will be okay. And the church takes a very back seat. And it's really designed for connection, childcare, and if you run a, some kind of a business and sales, sales opportunities. In the early church, there is no Bibles. The, the, to own Old Testament, you could have portions of it that you may have written down and put it up on the walls of your home, but to own an entire portion of the Old Testament was too expensive, too large. 
And this was true for many hundreds of years going into, you know, it wasn't until really the 1800s or save the 1700s, people had their own personal Bibles. I mention that because the corporate preaching of God's word, the public, this is why he says to, to Timothy, do not forsake the public teaching and preaching of God's word to his people. It is the primary means, besides the table and baptism, by which Christ is ministered to the heart of the believer who is weak. So, the importance of God's word publicly proclaimed to all of us, not through a podcast, but in person, has a profound spiritual element to it that I cannot explain to you, but I can only offer to you from Scripture. That as we receive Christ together, one of the things that uh, Paul also commands is to to speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Now, I feel like I'm beating some of you up, so I'm going to back down here a little bit. All I'm saying is, for the weary saint, the church should be that well you run to. Where you see that I have not the capacity to gain Christ on my own. I have not the capacity to motivate myself on my own, but God has given me this special family designed as a body that functions perfectly together that will build me up until Christ returns in my frailty and in my sin. I have a place to rest in hope. And not only do I have a place to rest in hope, but I have also a place of joy where I get to serve those who need rest and hope, right? So the preaching of God's word comes from something that's good and helpful to a place where you find lasting life. So if you come to church and I offer you anything but Christ and your hope in Christ, you should feel dry and if you're walking away as if you got nothing because you did get nothing. And so as a church, I encourage all of us that we value this part of it and we come ready so i i have to come ready every week if i don't come ready many of you will become very disappointed in me and may not find this church to be helpful for you anymore so i show up on weeks and i give you all of this john wisdom which i have some like you know don't spit in the wind it's good wisdom (laughs) but what i really need to do is prepare my heart so that i can accurately give christ to you And I think in return, as a congregation, we need to learn to prepare our own hearts so that we're ready to receive Christ in return. The second part is that when we're about to do at this table, this is very different for Baptists and this is very different for Bible churches. We actually don't hear and we're not necessarily told of this spiritual nature that comes with this bread and this grape juice. But according to the Bible, and we're going to get into this soon, according to the Word of God, there is something spiritual that happens to our faith as we feed on the symbol of Christ. I can't explain it. But it's a work of the Spirit that God has designed and used. Just like the fumbling preachers who get up and preach God's word and God uses it to minister to their hearts, so God uses the fumbling of really bad tasting bread and sugary grape juice, there's, there, the, the act of the corporate of us participating in that, there's something about it that causes us and our faith to increase in 
Christ, this is why Jesus says, as often as you meet together, do this to remind yourself of what is happening to you at this moment. And that is, you have living water. The spirit is within you. So men, let's go ahead and prepare for the taking of this once again. Let me pray for us. Our Father, today was a little different than what we normally do, but a great exhortation to my own heart. In moments of weakness, in moments of sin and struggle, where I know I need to repent and I know I need to rest on Christ, I have the hope of the body, that the body will not allow me, through love and kindness and patience through the power of the Spirit, to waffle, to wander. And that they will kindly call me home if Christ is the focus of our hope. And Lord, what we're about to partake in is another means by which we can see our faith increase in you and not in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.